Welcome to this episode of the Magazine Debrief. This week, we're looking at the 11th of December issue. I'm joined, as usual, by Gronya Hallahan. Hi, Gronya. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hello. And we were just talking just before coming on air, if you can call it that, how we're really looking very Christmassy. So uh, a very Merry Christmas to you all as we approach the Christmas period. So let's get started. Okay, first, we're going to look at uh, the cover feature, which is from Chris Parr. And I set Chris the task of going out and talking to teachers and saying, you know, how was the last three months? You know, since September, there was an expectation of some semblance of normality would return to schools, which was highly ambitious. You know, the, 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 the pressures were still there. The strains were still there. The, the virus was still there. And I think this expectation that norm, normality was even in any way possible was ridiculous um so we asked chris to go and talk to teachers about their experiences the last three months and we expected a a negative piece to be honest we expected you know a tale of struggle and what we actually got was a tale of creativity of ingenuity of positivity and it's a very uplifting piece that we've we've ended up with where teachers have said yes it's really really tough out there and we've really struggled this term it's probably been the hardest term we've had but there's been some amazing you know, discoveries around pedagogy in these three months where we've been forced into different areas and doing different things. And I think what really typifies that was it was a special school that's quoted and, you know, it should have been the hardest it could possibly be for a special school. You know, these are some of the most vulnerable children and the tales they tell about how they've used technology to improve the lives of these children over the last three months and how that will impact in the long term was quite incredible and you know they've developed a, a a chair for one of the pupils to sit in uh all via remote you know they, they taught them you know it's like a youtube video if you like about how to teach the parents to, to construct this chair so that the child could learn and there's an there's another thing where they're talking about how they coached parents to teach their these kids about you know because it's, it's a slightly different situation in, in special schools but it was just it's just about creativity and uh, I, I know you want to talk a bit about visualizers Gronje and, and how because um, one of the teachers quoted talks about how they've been forced to use the visualizer because of social distancing but actually this is something that should have happened before and will happen forevermore uh, well forevermore we have visualizers. I think visualizers are one of those pieces of ed tech that teachers are really evangelical about. If they if they've got one and they like using it, it's like you'll tear it out of my cold dead hands. I love I love my visualizer. Do we need to explain what a visualizer is? I'm just conscious that it's in my mind it's a it's a glorified OHP. Uh, I mean that might be sacrilege. <laughs> I think um, they're they're really common in classrooms now, both in secondary and in primary. Um, but it is a bit like a glorified OHP where you have um, a little camera on the top that points downwards and then you write underneath and the and it projects it onto the, the whiteboard for you. So you can have portable ones where you can move around the classroom and put it on different desks or you can just have your one at the front where you work and the students can, can see when you're modelling. And what I thought was really interesting in this piece is that um, Chris interviews Shabnam Ahmed and she's just talking about how when it was text like uh, computer text up on the, the board, they weren't interested. Like, the engagement was really low. But when she switched to handwriting and using the visualizer, they became much more engaged with what she was doing. And I think it's, it's really funny because it's that whole relationships thing again. Your handwriting and seeing you, you actually write something makes you feel a connection because it's your teacher 
and you're watching them do it. Whereas there's like another extra layer of disconnect when it's just computer text. It's mm. not them, isn't it? And when you are working remotely, when you are so far away from your classes, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a tool to make you feel a little bit closer. And when you are in the classroom and you're not able to actually physically get round to every student and to do your normal circulating, that being at the front and still being able to, to hand write it makes you feel closer, even if you can't be physically close. I have fond memories of the OHP. I think I just have to say this now. Uh, you know, this this weird contraption with the, you know, the roller on the side, this roller, was it some sort of plastic, I assume it was, and, you know, the pens. And we had one guy, who uh, a teacher, who I won't name, who was allergic to chalk, so he always used the OHP, and he had a range of different colours. This is sort of this magical pre-digital era uh you know i'm only 37 but it was pre-digital era and it was bizarre i also had an oh, i didn't know we had an ohp at our school and, and um permission for a slightly uh risque story but for whatever reason the manufacturer of this company i presume they weren't based in britain had called the device the nobo 90 the <laughs> n-o-b-o 90 so you can imagine a bunch of sort of ever so funny children saying sir are you going to get the nobo out <laughs> When he got the OHP out, which gave us all a good laugh, but he didn't like it. I've, I've got a really good brag now. You're going to be quite jealous. That you developed the Nobo 90? <laughs> I had nothing to do with the Nobo 90. Oh, great. But my dad was a university lecturer and we had an OHP at home and the OHP acetate, he would let me get my, my, my storybooks and I could trace over the pictures and then he'd put, put it on the OHP so we could see it projected up. You were a born teacher, weren't you, Grandma? <laughs> that, that was a brag. That's that was a brag. That was, you were just a little bit over. jealous of that. That you had an OHP at home in your childhood? Yeah. Hmm, no. <laughs> I, I'd have used it for shadow, some sort of puppetry, I think. Yeah, it was really yeah. good. And then when I did my, um, I did arts history A-level, and I used to print my essays out onto OHP acetate and then overlay it like on top of artwork, so it looked really cool when I thought mm. that I was... So you traced stuff. So essentially well, you I was were little. cheating. No, when I was a little girl, I did. I used to trace. Oh, I'm, I've got really fond memories of doing it. Cheating. cheating. Tracing's not cheating. Well, um, this feature, getting away from Gronya's cheating, uh, this feature is really good. If you want uh, an uplifting read about the last three months and, and a real showcase of how heroic teachers have been and how ingenious they've been, um, give it a read and, and celebrate yourselves. Okay, next, from celebrating teachers to... Should we call them grumpy teachers, Dan? Is that okay to call them grumpy teachers? I don't think that's fair. Um, I think um, this this article, the reason John said that is because we're going to look at Secret Santa, which I think is not not a phenomenon unique to teaching at all. Um, and everyone knows, will listen to this, whether they worked in schools or anywhere else in their past may have encountered Secret Santa. I know I have. Um, and it's sort of talking about the various complications it causes. You know, how do you find something suitable for someone, particularly if they're senior to you? Um, how do you show that you've sort of spent the money carefully and actually bought something considered when you don't know the person at all well? You know, if you're ill, you're allowed to get out of it. Um, no, says our author, Sally Kawagoa, although she suggests that, not that you shouldn't be dismissed from it, but that when she tried that in the past, she was told, no, not being ill is not acceptable. And I think it just shows that Secret Santa, I mean, I'm, I'm still for Secret Santa. I don't think we should dismiss it. I don't think we should get rid of it. But it is a, um, a social minefield at school, I think. Yeah, I mean, Amy Forrester does, did us a piece a couple of weeks ago where she, she detailed some very weird presents. I mean, I don't know what it is about teachers, but a lot of the presents seem to be have a, have a sexual nature. 
I mean, what's that about, Gronje? You've been in staff rooms. Why why does this happen? Yeah, I've I've given presents like that. I am oh, um, it's, um, it's, it's always my fault. I had um a friend who had two children already and then was pregnant with twins. Um, and it was a surprise and she was quite taken aback by this. And uh for her secret Santa, I got her condoms. I mean I that was a that's a great present. She thought it was funny. She laughed. It was okay. It was all fine. Um, I don't know. I think maybe it's because you're working with children all the time. So you're, you take the excuse of having secret Santa to do something a bit more grown up. Uh, I guess that's an interesting theory. I mean, I think some of the stuff listed on Amy's Twitter feed was uh, edible nipple tassels, <laughs> edible pants. I mean, it, you know, it's describing staff rooms as some sort of um, physical manifestation of, of Tinder. <laughs> Or they've yes, just got really, it? really good sense of humour. Well, it's, but that's the thing, is it? You've got to make sure the person receiving it has got that yeah. sense of humour. I mean, I, I genuinely, I won't go into great detail, but I worked somewhere once where someone bought someone a, a risque present and it was absolutely not taken the right way and ended up in front of HR and uh, oh very stressful situation. I only heard about this sort of secondhand, but yeah, you know, you've got to get, it's a bold shout, I think. I, I think what happens is people end up in those shops like a yes, yes. scribbler and places like that. And yes. they, have, they always have these slightly risque cards and risque things, and they're sort of just around the right kind of price amount. And it probably seems like a funny idea to At buy, oh, I know what, I'll get that person. And I, I don't know, I think it's a bit... It's a, well, if, it's great if you know the person very well. I think that's fine. If you absolutely 100%, no questions asked, you know they'll take it in the right way, that's great. Anything else, mm, get them a mug, keep it simple. <laughs> well, Sally makes a point, doesn't she, that even in a primary school, you don't always know everyone well enough to do Secret Santa well. And I think... Is it Secret Santa that is the problem, or is it a slightly disconnected staff room? In in the most community driven staff rooms where everyone's in there and knows each other, uh, is Secret Santa as much of a problem? Whereas in these sort of quite disparate schools, and it does happen for whatever reason, um, is it just a bit of a pain? I guess. I think even when you do know people really well, the obligation to buy another person a present when you're already buying all of your family a present, and it's. It's just another thing to do. Mm. I mean, confession, I usually forget I've entered one and then on, you know, I'll meet you at the restaurant or I'll meet you at the, the party and then I run to the nearest <laughs> shop and think, Christ, I don't even know who this person is or um, I do know who this person is, but I don't know them well enough to buy them anything. And then I just gravitate towards alcohol. <laughs> and... I guess that's dangerous in itself in these in these days because lots of people don't drink, especially in January. We've yeah. got a good secret Santa this year, though, at Tez, haven't we? We do, and I definitely know what it's all about, and I've definitely read the email. <laughs> I was going to say, you put John on the spot there based on what you just said previously. <laughs> I was assuming that John had read the email. Dan, you've read the email, haven't well, you? Well, I have, yeah. And I mean, we're basically donating to a charity that we think that person will like um, and then sort of doing it in a way that they don't know who's donate the money on their behalf or something so they yeah, put their true. email in but then what if they end up on some endless mailing list they don't want or something that's what i was worried about but so um, what would you what charity do you think i would what would you get for me um ooh, pies uh, pies <laughs> is there a charity for pies yeah steak lovers steak lover pies who's camera charity is the real ale society <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> Well, my, I'd say a dog charity because I, you know, when I was younger, I used to cry whenever a dog got killed in a film. But you know, I could look at all sorts of other violence and be fine. The dog is man's best friend. Mm. 
Do you, do you um, not cry still if you see dogs in films? Getting... I probably would. I did, if I had time to watch a film, I probably would. <laughs> um, but no, it's a, good, it's, a good, it's a great piece by Sally. And it, um, it does delve into, you know, it appears to be about Secret Santa, but actually it looks at, you know, how well do we know our colleagues? How well should we know our colleagues? Um, you know, is a present an appropriate gift for a colleague, especially if it's edible nip, nipple tassels or condoms? Um so yeah, have a have a read and and reflect. I guess it's a reflective piece. Okay, so for our last piece we're gonna look at today from the magazine, uh we are delving into the EYFS. Yes, and a topic that's really I'm I'm really passionate about and I think is really important, and the idea of creating gender neutrality in your EYFS classroom. So it looks at what the problem is at the moment and how children often gravitate towards certain role play areas. And the article looks at why that might be and what they can do to change it. And one of the most interesting things in there, I thought was the fact that what really saw change in how the children behave was when they put images up of boys and girls doing different roles. So for example, in the construction area, which had always typically been dominated by the boys in the class, they put up pictures of women and girls dressed up in the construction outfits and doing using the construction materials and then girls used it more and likewise when the they put up images in the boy in the um home corner which usually typically was being dominated by the girls in the classroom they put up pictures of boys using the corner and dressed up wearing, wearing the role play clothes and then boys used it more and it's something that we say a lot isn't it you can't be what you can't see and by physically doing that in the classroom, like deliberately putting up these images, they actually saw a change in how the children behaved and used the the different toys and the different role playing. Mm. And yeah, I really like that that bit of the feature really stuck out to me because it seemed like a very easy, but like you said, very sort of impactful way of making a small child sort of have a little almost like making them stop in their tracks and think, oh, mm. I could do that. Why don't I go and play in that corner instead? And I think that's really important, isn't it? Because of course men boys can go and play in the home court and of course girls can go and play in construction they do in everyday life but just it's still for some reason there's that perception all through society that oh you know there's these two routes and really maybe, maybe there always will be i don't know but at least give people the option to know they can try the different routes may not close their minds off to it by virtue of some sort of social construct when you flip through um like children's toy magazines and catalogues they always have boys using what would be classed as boys toys mm. And they have girls using all the girls' toys. And when you switch it up and when you actually show pictures of girls and boys doing different things, I notice in my children when we look through, through catalogues and or looking at adverts or standing in the shop and they've got all the images around, if they see their children of their own gender playing with the toys, they're more inclined to, to go and look mm. at that toy. It's, it's fascinating. It's definitely, there's definitely a, psych, like a psycho, psychology behind it because you see it and then you, you copy it and you see yourself doing yeah. it. There was there was an amazing Twitter thread I saw a while ago, and it was someone pointing out that all the T-shirts in the in the boys and girls section, all the girls' T-shirts said things like "kindness is amazing" and "I love being kind." Oh, you know, a lovely message, no question. All the boys' T-shirts were sort of like "I rock," you know, "make way for me," "I'm coming through." And the person said, "It's no wonder, is it, that when there's like a shortage of something in the classroom, it's the girls who are the first to offer their iPads up or not or go without because they're kind of very subtly but very clearly there's this sort of ongoing message of sort of you, you know, girls are kind and we share and boys, yeah, they get stuff done. And I, I really don't like that. And I think it's, you know, 
it is, it is, it would, of course, it's going to just subliminally just sort of seep through, particularly then if you go into school and you only see boys in the construction and girls in the home area. Like, we do need to balance those two things. And that example you just gave of like girls wanting to be willing to share their things and to do nice things, that's lovely, but it also permeates into other aspects of your life where you don't want to say anything in case you're seen as being unkind and you therefore don't stand up for yourself or you don't confront something that's upset you or when somebody says something that you know is wrong, you don't challenge it because you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable and it is problematic to make girls feel all the time like they've got to be the nice one and to and it's the comments another thing that came up in that piece was the fact that when boys use the the role play area in the home corner it might draw comments from members of staff that it's something unusual or sometimes like oh isn't that silly like oh how funny like he's he's put an apron on and it's minding your language and thinking about your language and being mindful how you might not have meant anything by it, but mm. everything we say to children, they take in and it becomes that inner voice, doesn't it? And so we've, we've just got to be more careful about it and make sure that we're not telling them things unintentionally about what we expect them to be and what we expect them to be when they're older. It's a, it's a, it's a tension, isn't there? Because a lots of people try and get boys writing by letting them write about superheroes or you know, they, they appeal to what the kids bring into the classroom. And so there's an external factor to this where they're being gendered, if you like, outside the classroom. Yeah. And there's an interesting bit in the piece where she says young boys tend to wear dresses in you know, preschool mm-hmm. um, age group and not get commented because it's sort of accepted. But yeah. As soon as they hit this mysterious age of four, it becomes oh, we're in a gendered environment and maybe the boy shouldn't be wearing a dress. And she's saying, actually, boys tend to wear dresses because of the feel of the fabrics and, you know, the feel of you know, swooshing around and it's all very sensory and it's not seen that way. I think it's really sad, isn't it, that, that you're four years old and you're being put, you know, adults around you are sort of already telling you, oh, you can't do that because putting on a dress at four it means nothing. It's having fun. It's being silly. It's playing a game. Like you said, it's, it's, all, it's more about texture and colour and things. And you know, so what? And it's the same with, you know, like the idea of like what it's odd, isn't it? Like cooking and being, you know, in the the cookery kind of thing. It's like, well, actually, all over TV, you only see successful male chefs everywhere. Mm-hmm. But at a young age, it's like, oh no, 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 that's that's the girls playing that bit. And I think I think it is I think it is something which in this day and age, everything gets so sort of thrown into the culture wars of wokeness and whatever. But I think it is important to give that kind of you can do what you want at young age. And adults and teachers, whoever, should try really hard to just check themselves and think, I don't need to say some comment about, oh, that's what girls do, that's not what boys do. Because it's just, it's silly, isn't it? They're a child, they're experimenting, they're having fun, and that's fine. It's a good point you make about the chefs, actually, because if you think of the most prominent female chef on telly, it's Nigella Lawson, right? And she's hypersexualized in, in that role. We, we have this gender stereotype of, in, 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 of cooking and home ec. I was the only boy to do home ec, in, in, in year oh, really? nine, year 10. Yeah, I was awful at it, but I did try. I, I thought it would be fun. Um, and all the boys were doing woodwork. And then me and my friend Russell, well, I was the, the one of two boys, me, me and my friend Russell Brooks did, did home ec. And, and it was genuinely because we wanted to, not because we wanted to meet girls, because, you know, I was rubbish, <laughs> um, to put it bluntly. But, but then you get into this professional world and suddenly the, what the, 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 the people we elevate are men. And there is a problem where the most prominent female yeah. chef is a hypersexual well, version. I think you should point out Monica Galetti on MasterChef is probably equally high profile mm. and, and is not, and, and you know, clearly is a highly skilled and talented person. But yeah, she I think she, you know, they're the kind of except most of the chefs on TV, or at least but or it's more like the ones that are the male ones, they're, they're hyper mass, you know, there's so much sort of it's like yeah. Gordon Ramsay and it's all it's mm. aggression because that's the only way they sort of 
are allowed to be in that environment or whatever. Although they're okay, it's okay for them to be like that because that's how they act and they're really aggressive. They're not. I mean, I know that's I sort of generalizing, it's a bit, isn't it? And when we also think about in the home, when do men cook? When there's a barbecue because it's a performance and mm, you're outside and it's yeah, very yeah. manly because I'm going to get raw meat and put it on the I mean, that you, might you should have seen my... Gronya's face then. It just, it just really <laughs> emphasised the point so well. She does a good alpha male barbecuing impression. It's just a, a brilliant impression of my my husband Pat, who's uh, the mm. most masculine. There's meat on the on the barbecue. It's how we're going to cook. I love how Pat's become this sort of mysterious person of the podcast. <laughs> I think we should have him on as a we guest next, next inset day. He has, or you know, next half term holiday, we, we'll, we'll welcome Pat to defend himself against. <laughs> character assassination of 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 Kronia. so when we when we do see chefs doing that sort of that sort of cooking performance cooking that's okay and when it's it's masculine and it's outdoors and it's that's okay but the idea of being a homemaker and somebody who looks after the home and cooking for the children that's seen as a different sort of cooking isn't it and that's the, mm. that's the cooking that's the, the women do and the washing up that's what the women do it's, well, if we flip it though and say, okay, as a as a primary child, how many male teachers do we see, exactly. and what does that do to when they grow up? And we have this perception of primary teaching. You've written this amazing feature a few months ago about you know this notion of teaching as feminine. Mm. How much is that down to the fact that these people are growing up through their formative years in primary school with only a female role model, really? In the classroom, we're, we're we're back to the pictures again, aren't we? What we're going to do mm. in primary school? Stick loads of pictures of male teachers up on, on the wall. It's not going to quite cut it, is it? It's no. we need to have more uh, more of a balance in primary school. And do you know what else this made me start to think about? The idea of representation of people with different abilities and of different ethnicities in in what we the images that we show children. How important it is to have a real mix in our classrooms of of that reflects the society that we live in. That we're not all neat I don't know like stock stock photos of people and that the pictures we put up in primary schools and the images we put on the walls really do matter oh yeah definitely it's uh it shows what a complex interesting subject is though but I do I do think it's yeah then the feature is interesting you know coming back to that is that it shows this school where they obviously trying to address this and it shows there are little ways it can be done I think small things that could have a real impact in terms of just changing mindset in a in a small child or in a parent or in a in another teacher but i think you know yeah people do get very entrenched in very sort of simplistic views of the world don't they, they and they want to define things it's, and it's easy then isn't it you know, that's what boys do that's what girls do and that's what it's always been and that's great but it's not really like that well um please do send us your feedback on that one because i'd be interested to see what other settings are doing um as as dan and gonya said the, the picture thing sounds like a simple solution but it's actually has such a big impact and i think sharing best practice is the way forward there and if we can get EYFS professionals um, discussing this more and sharing best practice and ways they've approached it and ha- what's worked and what, what hasn't. And, you know, what happens afterwards? I mean, it'd be great to have a notion of, okay, we did this five years ago and do you know what our year sixes are are much more ra- well-rounded on, on these issues than, than would be otherwise. So, yeah, please do get in touch. Okay, so that's um, the end of the podcast. But before we, we go, I did promise to talk about our favourite toys of as children and and how gendered they were on topic of, of the last feature we just discussed. So so I will go first. I mean, I'm I'm afraid I was very poor and I'm not blaming my parents for this, but I had 
I love my Ghostbusters station, which you could pour slime into the top. And I love my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where I just used to smash them against each other. And I don't know what that says about me, but I'm, I'm, this is my confession. I had a very gendered toy uh, fascination. I, I mean, I don't remember, to be honest, very specifically. I mean, I remember there was a thing called Boglins. Do you remember them? They were these horrible little sort of creatures with faces, and you could put your things inside them and sort of move them around. Were they rip off goblins? Oh, yes, like the finger <laughs> puppet thing. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they will sort of come off gremlins, but I don't, I don't know. But there were some like, that were big, like, and you could put, almost put your hold. Yeah, and yeah, and there were some like, little ones. Yeah. They were they were probably quite boyish because they were quite sort of you know and creepy. But I mean, I spent most toys I had were fairly. I guess they were fairly boyish, but I can I can't remember. I guess you it was you and your brother, so you know mm. it's hard to have access to that whereas with my kids my 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 boys who are the oldest only went to my mum's and there was only there was like prams and babies and stuff there because because that's what my cut their cousins had and yet my daughters who came after my boys they just play with lego and cars all the time because that's what the boys wanted and so it's weird actually so i've got two older brothers and i would play with them and their toys i don't really remember like toys toys because we just used to play out like in the garden a lot. I don't really, I guess I had lots of My Little Ponies. And I can't, I can't imagine you pushing a pram. I just don't, you, I don't even then I think you were just, I just don't, can't see you doing, doing I, that. I used to wear my brother's clothes and stuff. I was quite, a, I was probably a bit of a tomboy when I was little. And then when my sister was old enough to play with me, then we had our girls' toys that we played with together. But then I've got another little brother. We then used to use his action men and uh, we'd play like with all of our stuff together. So I don't know. I think I feel like toys now are more gendered than they were when we were, than we were little. I think, that's, I think that's probably true, actually. And I, think, and I think we need to be clear that gendered toys don't mean you force uh, My Little Ponies on boys is that you give, or, or cars on girls, is that you give kids the choice. And yeah. you don't, you know, if they want something that's typically seen as the opposite gender, then that's fine. Yeah, I think it's just that adults are not... Sky Electrics, that was my best toy. Sky Electrics, <laughs> best oh, toy ever. Yeah, that is good. Flying off at the corners because you pressed down too hard. Oh, I love Sky Electrics. Um, and, and you never learn. Every corner, so I'm going to just go 100 miles an hour. Like, <laughs> yeah. This time it'll go round. <laughs> <laughs> glue it to the floor. Um <laughs> Okay, so that, that's probably all we've got time for this week. But next week, we've got a very special um, podcast because we'll be talking about our person of the year. Um, it's not a competition. It's uh, the Tez editorial team gets together. We think about who's had the most influence on education over the past year. And as you can imagine, this year was, was really tough because it's been a tough year for teaching. So we will, um, we will probably discuss some of the list and maybe even try and get a guest on. Who knows? We'll, we'll try our best. So... Um, Tune in next week and uh, we'll see you soon. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.